Thanks so much, uh, Linda. It's great to have that reading before us. And uh, today we're going to be starting a new series. We've, we've worked our way through the book of uh, 1 and 2 Thessalonians over the last couple of weeks, which has been really great. And uh, today we're going to start a new series in preparation for Christmas called Love Came Down. And basically what we're doing is we're looking to prepare for the arrival of Jesus. And today, more specifically, we're going to be looking at um, the fact that God was preparing the way for Jesus in the Old Testament, and that's what I'm going to ask uh, that God would help us to do this morning as we look at the book of Psalms. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these songs of yours. Thank you that they've been preserved through thousands of years. I pray today as we look for your son, Jesus, that by your Holy Spirit, you would show him to us that we might honor and worship him. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, uh, are you waiting for Christmas? My kids are waiting for Christmas. So kids of a certain age, very, very excited. Kids of a slightly different age, probably just going, is it there yet? No. Is it there yet? No. Oh, is that how many days we've got left? That's terrible. Whereas the kids go, as in, we, we think it's terrible because it's so close. The kids go, it's terrible because it's so far away. Anyway, my kids uh, wake up in the morning and this, this, uh, this confronts them. Actually, they have a second thing as well. Um, but th- this is their little um, uh, Advent sort of thing. And they open it up and there's a little pocket and in it there's a little bit of scripture um, that's sort of part of the story of Christmas. And so they, they have been fighting about whose turn it is each day. So we've just made it alternate days. And because we've got two of them, they get alternate days on the opposite thing. So it works really well. Everyone gets something every day, but they don't get it every day. So waiting for Christmas, it's a very exciting, well-oiled machine uh, in the Star household. And every day as I have my cereal, my kids will tell me exactly how many days we have to go, which I find mildly terrifying. But that's that's what it's like. Uh, So Israel was waiting too. But before Jesus came, Israel was waiting too. And I want us to think about why they were waiting And uh, the reason that they were waiting was God's promises. God had promised in advance that there would be something to come. More important, someone to come, the Messiah. The Messiah would come. And I think the natural question after that is, what is a Messiah? Uh, Not just a great pick for your sporting team. You know, they're waiting for such and such to be the Messiah for their team. That's kind of how we use it in a colloquial way. What it meant in the Bible was the promised king, God's promised king. What they were waiting for was the king that God would say is going to come and rule in his place, in his, under his power and authority, and take God's people to the place that he wants them to be, i.e. living in right relationship with him. So why were they waiting? They were waiting because of God's promise, but more specifically, God's promise for his Messiah. So who was waiting? Well, we actually see this quite a bit in the New Testament. So the bit that we're more familiar with probably than the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see a whole bunch of people waiting at various points. Uh, In Luke 2, 25 to 26, uh, we're told that Simeon was waiting in the temple for the consolation of Israel. We'll, We'll hear that later on as we read Luke 2 as we get closer to Christmas. But he was a guy who was hanging out in the temple day after day waiting for the Messiah to be revealed. We have the people when John the Baptist showed up. So John the Baptist showed up and the people started a bit of a whispering campaign. They're like, there's this fiery preacher guy who's telling everyone to repent. I wonder if he's the Messiah. 
And so the people started to ask themselves, is John the Baptist the Messiah? Then, funnily enough, once Jesus turned up and started to do miracles and signs, here's the amazing thing that we see in Matthew 11. We see that John was wondering if Jesus was the Messiah. So John's in jail, and he actually sends some, uh, some messengers to go and speak to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, are you the Messiah, or should we wait for someone else? So even John himself was looking around and wondering, who's the Messiah? And then we see in John 7 that the people are looking at the Jewish authorities and they see that the Jewish authorities aren't sure what to do with Jesus. The authorities of Jesus' time were wondering, is he the Messiah? Or to use a phrase, or is he a very naughty boy? Uh, in other words, they were wondering, is this guy an imposter? Is he someone who's leading the people astray? Or could it be that this is the Messiah? And what the people of, of, of Israel were doing is they're looking at the Jewish leadership and they're saying, hey, Jewish leadership, you haven't arrested this guy. You haven't stoned him yet. Have you concluded that this guy really is the Messiah? So all throughout Israel, for hundreds of years, was a growing anticipation saying, where is the promised king? Where is the promised king? Now, uh, have people heard this turn of phrase? Kara and I have a, a wonderful game in our household. Um, I say something, and Kara says, what does that mean? And I go, well, actually, it's a phrase. It's a thing people say. And she goes, nobody says that. I suspect she's probably true most of the time. Um, but uh, has anyone heard this saying, uh, when life gives you lemons... Hey, you make lemonade. Okay, all right. So you've, you've heard that one. When life gives you lemons, what do you do? You make lemonade. What's this, what's this turn of phrase about? Well, it's about saying when things are terrible, don't just accept the terrible. I, I think it's for people who don't like lemons, incidentally. Uh, but, but the idea is when, when you get the terrible, bitter stuff, turn it into something better. Do something good with it. Redeem it, in other words. Make the most of this thing that's messed up. So when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. I think it's possible to look at Jesus and say he's the saviour of the world and think to yourself, is this God making lemonade out of lemons? Right? He had this beautiful world and then Adam and Eve do the wrong thing, go, go against what you would think is God's plan, and then he has to send the rescue man to go and kind of fix it all up. Is the Messiah actually a lemonade out of lemons moment for God? Well, the answer to that, of course, is no. No, it's not. The Messiah is not God's plan B. The Messiah is not God's plan B. He will be a rescuer. He will be a redeemer. He will set things right, but he is not God's plan B. And uh, your question to me is right. That's fine. How do you know? How, how do you know that he's not the plan B? He certainly did come and make things right, but, but how do you know he's not the plan B? And the answer I want to look at today, at least in part, is the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, we actually see something of God's plan revealed. And so I've said up there, it's a prophetic book. That is, it tells us something of what's to come. It tells us something of what's to come. And there's something really interesting about the way prophecy works, prophecy fore foretelling what's going to happen in the, uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. And I think, have you seen this diagram before? Have I showed you this before? 
uh, there's, there's what we call two horizons for prophecy. So people who are writing the scriptures, the, the, the Bible says that the prophets don't speak on their own, but they speak as they were inspired by God's Holy Spirit. And so as they're writing stuff down, they're writing down what is, they believe good for now. And so the prophecy that they have has a present fulfillment. But it also, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through God taking their words, actually also applies to the future. So it'll have some relevance for now, but it'll have an ultimate fulfillment in the, in the future. Okay? And the problem is when we look at it, we see it just like this. We see it, well, I just read it off and I go, oh, that just seems to say something for now. But what, what we see if we look at it a bit more closely is it actually has this dual fulfillment. It actually has relevance for the present. So in this case, lots of the Psalms will be talking about the Messiah of their time. The anointed king of God was, in many of the Psalms, who? King David. And so David is writing from his perspective. Hey, this is, this is God's word to me right now. Or this is God's word to the next king of Israel. Okay, So it has present fulfillment. But often, these words that are written, these songs that were sung, would never have been able to be fulfilled by David. They were in part, but it sounds like they're looking forward to something much more. If we fast forward to the future, who are they looking forward to? The Messiah, who might be Jesus. Let you in a little secret, yeah. Jesus, okay? But it's worth saying, it's really important to say, David didn't know Jesus. Are we clear? He wasn't, he wasn't sitting in his desk writing this beautiful, he's going, oh, I can't wait to get this. This will be a top 10 hit in the temple. It's going to be brilliant. I'm writing out my, my latest song. And what I'm thinking about is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Make no mistake, he had no idea. He was writing as he was inspired by God, but he was looking forward to what God would do, but he never saw it. He only knew in part what we know in full. Uh, I was um, doing some, uh, some, I was trying to think of a, a, an analogy for this, and so I came across ice cores. Does anyone know what ice cores are? So the idea here is that you go somewhere where there's heaps and heaps really deep ice. Does anyone seriously know about this? Because I should know, right, all right, very good. Uh, and when I say seriously no, you'll be able to correct me afterwards and come and have a whisper in my ear, tell me what I've got wrong. Thank you, that's good, okay. So the rest of you assume I'm right. No, 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 I, I've, I've done enough to have a brief understanding of what's going on. So basically what they do is they go to somewhere where there's all this compacted um, ice, uh, either glacial ice or somewhere in, in Antarctica or Greenland, somewhere like that. They'll, they'll drill down into the ice. And what, what comes out, if you get this big long tube, is a history from the ice. So when you have uh, a very heavy snow season, it'll be really dense and compacted. When you have a light snow season, it'll be lighter, okay? When there's earthquakes, uh, not earthquakes, when there's volcanoes, you'll get a little layer of, of ash that's just been circulating around the world and that ends up deposited in this layer. And once you start being able to work out, hey, we know this volcano happened at this time, we can see this layer here, then you can start looking at the way oxygen, hydrogen, atoms, decay, and all sorts of stuff. And you actually start working out what temperature what there was in the world and what the weather was like. So essentially what you have in this ice core, you drill down, you pull it out, and they keep it at minus 20 degrees, and they transport it carefully. And all this. When, you, when you go through and analyze it, you actually have 
this history of what has happened. And what's amazing is you can stand in that place and know nothing about what will happen in the future or what happens in the past. But when you dig down, you can find some extraordinary record that will actually tell you about the past and help you know about the future. Just extraordinary. I think the scriptures work for us just like this. You dig in them to understand what has happened in the past, and when you analyze it, you can work out from there what will happen in the future. And so we have this incredible opportunity with the scriptures to see this unfolding story of God from the Old Testament to the New, from creation all the way through to new creation. That's what's on offer in this picture that God gives us in the scriptures. Where do the Psalms fit into this? Well, in the Old Testament, the Psalms fit in around the time of King David. And they're around 1000 BC, around 1000 BC. And what we're saying is that in this period before Jesus, not just a little bit before Jesus, but something like a thousand years before Jesus, we are getting signs and indicators of what will come. Of what will come. And they're not buried, but they are inserted throughout this book uh, in the book of Psalms. So I guess what I want to do with you today is to find out what can the book of Psalms tell us? If we dig down into the book of Psalms, what can we see about the Messiah who is to come? What can we see about the Messiah who is to come? Well, I've got, uh, I've got a number of points for us. And the first one is the Messiah is God's son. And the way I want to do this for you is, uh, we, we could jump around, but unless you're really quick Bible flickers, I suspect this is going to be hard work. But, you know, take the challenge if you want to, if you want to, if you want to jump in with me. Um, Psalm 2, so this is where we had our, our first reading. Uh, in Psalm 2, we see this extraordinary psalm about someone who is clearly on God's favoured list. Uh, it says this, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Something extraordinary is happening. God is saying to the psalmist, I will be your father. I will be your father. God will be the father of this one who is to come. You are my son. Today I have become your father. We see this picked up in the book of Hebrews. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a look at the Old Testament in Psalms, and then I want to take you through to the New Testament, and I want you to see how the New Testament picks up the language of the Psalms and says, see, that's Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 1, we see this incredible account of these words from the Psalm, Psalm 2, being picked up, where it says there, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. It's incredible. What the writer of the Hebrews is saying is, what was prophesied in Psalm 2 is fulfilled in Jesus. How do I know that this one is God's son? Well, firstly, God says that he'll be his father. That's a good start. Secondly, we know he has to be God's son in an incredibly special way because who's worshipping him? Did you hear that? The angels are worshipping him. So it can't be just, hey, this is a king who's having a good run. 
it has to be that this is the divine son of God. And there it is. Stitched into the Psalms, we find that the Messiah will be worshipped. What do we conclude? The Messiah is God's son. That's our first point. The Messiah will be God's son. Secondly, we'll see the Messiah is David's son. If we have a look at Psalm 89, uh, Psalm 89 and verses 3 to 4, uh, we can see this. Apart from the fact that the Psalms just overflow with beautiful language, they, they have these incredible statements in them. Uh, so Psalm 89, you said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. So basically, this is in song form what God said to David in 2 Samuel. He said, David, you want to build a house for me. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to establish your offspring as rulers forever. Forever. It's a pretty impossible promise with just human kings, isn't it? Because what happens to monarchies in, uh, in our world generally? They eventually fall over, don't they? Uh, it may be because you can't have kids, so there's no offspring, so, so there's a power vacuum and someone takes it. It might be because there's a war. It might be because the peasants rise up. But if I was to say to you, your throne will be established forever, that's actually a pretty big ask. But here it is. God promised to David, your, your offspring I will establish your throne through them forever. In Luke 2, we see somebody wandering along, uh, a carpenter, a guy called Joseph. And uh, have a look at what it says in Luke 2, 4 to 6. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pleased to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. See, why does it matter that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? It's the town of David. What does that tell us? Joseph is a descendant of David. This line also passes through Mary. The descendants of David are in Bethlehem because the one to be born had to fulfill the psalm, the promise of God, which said, I will establish your line forever. So first things first, the, the coming Messiah will be God's son. Second thing, he'll be David's son. Now this, this already speaks to us. Can I just have a little extra moment here? This already speaks to us and says something extraordinary about the Messiah. Going to be worshipped by angels? What does that mean? Has to be... God. Going to be descended from David. What does that mean? Has to be human. Can you see this? So amazingly, what we're getting set up in the Old Testament is the incarnation, which is fully God, fully man. Can you see that? Isn't that amazing? Son of God, son of David. What else do we learn? The Messiah will be from David. The Messiah is to be rejected. So you might think to yourself, hey, I've got someone who angels are going to worship who's descended from David, this, this is just going to be a home run. Everyone's going to love him. You could think that, couldn't you? Well, let's have a look. In Psalm 118, in Psalm 118, uh, we see that perhaps 
uh, as was just read for us by Linda, we, we see that perhaps uh, everything won't work out swimmingly for the Messiah. In verse 22, it says, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. There's a stone that has been rejected and it's lying on the side. And what God does is he picks it up and says, that's actually going to be the locking point to hold the whole arch together, the capstone, the cornerstone. So Jesus, using these words, speaks of those who are opposing him. In Matthew 21, 42, we see this. So uh, the Pharisees are responding to Jesus and they don't love him. They don't love him. They're threatened by him. And Jesus just kind of casually refers to Psalm 118 uh, when he says this. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders, uh, builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, I want you to think with me. These guys were Pharisees. Do you think they'd ever read Psalm 118 before? Look at Jesus. He's so funny, isn't it? Have you never read the scripture? And go, of course we read it. We can quote the whole rest of it off by heart to you right now. And Jesus says, you might be able to quote it off by heart, but your hearts are hard to what it means. And this is all the danger with Scripture, isn't it? That we can know it, but not have it impact our lives. And so here were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they thought they knew the Scriptures inside out. And Jesus going, hey, I'm going to guess you never read this before. But the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's actually talking about me. You'll be shocked to know. So the first thing we need to note about this Messiah is not, not, not what we would expect. The Messiah will be scorned. The Messiah will be scorned. The next thing we want to see about the scorn of the Messiah, and this is where I want you to get, <laughs> the Messiah isn't God's plan B. So, so I, I can't emphasize this enough. Once you've been a Christian for long enough, some of you might not know the story well enough to, to be falling into this trap. But once you know the story well enough, you go, oh yeah, Jesus gets crucified. If you don't know the story, that should be shocking to us. God's promised king comes into the world, son of David, son of God, teaches, does miracles, comes to his promised people who've been waiting for him for a thousand years and they crucify him we should be absolutely shocked and I think it would be possible to go well that was a terrible plan and God's plan C was to raise Jesus from the dead to prove them that they hadn't stuffed up plan B but we see here even here the crucifixion is actually foretold even in the Psalms have a look at Psalm 22 and verse 1 and it's it's amazing how much this Psalm just calls out to Jesus' experience on the cross. In Psalm 22, we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Where do we hear those words again? You know, don't you? Here's where they turn up. In Matthew 27, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's no accident. It's no surprise. It is not a 
a torpedo in the side of God's vessel of salvation. It is exactly in accordance with his plan. It's exactly in accordance with his plan. And so we see here the Messiah will be abandoned, will be killed, will we'll have this sense of being abandoned by God. No surprise, it's there in the scriptures. But there's even more. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. Have a look with me at Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, are you getting the idea that it's not just in one place? That's, that's kind of the... Yep, good. In Psalm 16 and verses 8 to 10, I, uh, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You'll fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. What it's saying here is something quite extraordinary. The chosen one won't stay dead. You won't abandon me to the realm of the dead. And then on, in Acts 2, as Peter stands up and he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, he goes, oh, there's a psalm about that, I think, actually. This stuff that just happened with Jesus. And so he says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. In other words, what he's saying is, David wrote Psalm 16. And you know what? He's dead as a doornail. So what he's saying is, you know this scripture and you know David's tomb. So who could he have been talking about? Well, it says, but he was a prophet. He was a prophet and spoke of what was to come, the resurrection of the Messiah. Isn't that awesome? And so we see in the Psalms, the Messiah is the resurrected one. The Messiah will be raised. He will not let his holy one see decay. Thirdly, uh, thirdly, sixthly, I think it is. Uh, the Messiah is the eternal. This is the last one, I promise. Bear with me. There's so many more. I, I read a website the other day. It's had 89, so I'm being, I'm being merciful to you, you see? Probably to the kids' leaders, actually, is who I'm being merciful to. Uh, the Messiah is the eternal son. So uh, this one gets a bit tricky, but bear with me. It's going to have a good payoff. Is that all right? Hang in there. In Psalm 110, verse 4, it says this, The Lord has sworn... And will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You go, cool. What's a Melchizedek? Melchizedek's a bizarre guy who turns up in the Old Testament. It says he's a man without history, without lineage, and Abraham meets him, bows down, and gives him a tenth of everything he has. And then he disappears. He's a priest of God before there's a priesthood. And what this psalm is saying is, this Messiah will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, one greater than Abraham, one who received a tenth from Abraham. And so here's what it says in Hebrews 4, 5, and 6. So Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I've become your father. Heard that before? And he says in another place, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Why does that matter? Here's why. The Messiah will be a king and he will be a priest forever. He will be raised to life, never to die again. He can always be king and he can always be priest because of his resurrection. And there it is. It's in the Psalms. So the Messiah is, who's the Messiah? 
We should have done a drum roll. It would have been really good, wouldn't it? Can I, can I encourage you? I, I went to a great website called Jews for Jesus. Have you seen this? Jews for Jesus. And these guys are people a bit like with the same heart of the Apostle Paul, right? They love their fellow Jews. And what they long to see is, do you see that the whole of the Scripture is looking forward to Jesus? And so there's this sense, the Messiah is, drum roll. Oh, no, you're not kidding. Okay, that's very good. Well, the Messiah is Jesus. How wonderful is that? The Messiah is Jesus. And you're like, duh. The kids out here know that it's Jesus. But it's a special revelation. God is showing you that if you know that Jesus is the Messiah, God has shown you. If you accept that as a beautiful truth, God is showing you that he is the Messiah. And so when the Messiah turns up, he, he's, remember he's walking after his resurrection. He's walking up the road with some of his followers. And, uh, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus says, I am the hope of the whole Old Testament. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. Isn't that brilliant? And why is he that? Because he's the son of God and he's the son of David. Because he was rejected, because he was resurrected, and because he is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. How good is that? No one else can fulfill that. No one can fulfill that. The job is done. It's filled. No point looking for the Messiah anymore. It's Jesus. And so I want you to know today, Jesus is not God's plan B. And if he's not God's plan B, then I want you to know you can trust God. He will fulfill his plans. What we see in the past is God kept his promises and brought his Messiah. What we know of the future, we can trust because God has been trustworthy with the past. Jesus is not plan B. Secondly, Jesus is alive and he is eternal. Jesus is alive and he's eternal. Right now, he sits at his Father's right hand. And what that means, he's able to help you today. He is able to help you today because he lives. He reigns as king and he ministers as priest. Brilliant. Uh, one of my favorite things every, every, every Christmas, I hope this happens this, this year, Caro. Christmas, I get, I get a little bit of Lego every single Christmas. It's generally a box this big these days, but I love it every time. There's a little random pile there, a little random pile, but I get a little booklet and I can turn it into a plane or a car or a helicopter or whatever. It's fantastic. So here's a pile that looks chaotic, but there is a plan. And when you pull it together, it, it forms itself into this beautiful little thing. Looks random, but there's a plan and you can pull it together. What I want to encourage you is that Jesus is there in the Old Testament. Jesus is there in the Old Testament. He is the Messiah. He always was. It was no plan B. And so I want to encourage you to look for him today in the Old Testament. Go reading. Go looking for the promised Messiah in the Old Testament. You know, eventually, a thousand years later, love came down. That's, that's the name of our series, Love Came Down. Eventually, love came down in the form of Jesus, the only one who could ever fulfill all of these incredible expectations and promises. And why does that matter? Well, here's how beautiful it is from Psalm 2. You are my son. Listen to this afresh, given that we see Jesus here. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Kiss the son. 
lest he be angry and you are destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the incredible way you prepared for your son, the Messiah, to come. We thank you that you keep your promises. We thank you that your promise is to redeem those who've gone astray. We thank you for the cross and for Jesus' rejection that will be triumphed over by resurrection. Father, we thank you that he stands at your right hand and that because of that, he can be our king and our priest forever. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.